Amen, amen, amen. Father, we bless your holy name. We worship you. We acknowledge that you are the creator of heaven and earth, the deliverer from all of our enemies, and our, our blessed king. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. We've been teaching a series on healing belongs to us for many weeks. I don't even know how long we've been going, to be honest with you. And the subject of healing is so ingrained in the Bible that we could teach on it forever. But this morning, I want to back up a little bit and kind of take a broad overview of God's character and nature and how that fits with the promise of healing. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God, after having created everything in the earth, he comes to the sixth day, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female he created he them. And the Lord blessed them, and the Lord said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The Bible tells us in this verse 26 of Genesis 1, the Bible tells us God's plan and purpose for mankind. He gives man the authority over all the work of his hands and everything that's on the earth. And the Bible gives us the example of how God subdued the earth and made the changes and created it as he will through words. So when God exercises authority over the earth, he did so with words, and then he gave that authority to man. And we only have to assume, and we can certainly prove it by other scriptures, but we have to conclude that God intended for man to operate the same way that he did. That's why he created man in his image and in his likeness. Now, why did God make man, and why did God operate the way that he did? I've heard some people say that God was lonely, and so he created Adam and Eve. Folks, if God was lonely, then he's not God, because God is the self-reliant one. He doesn't need anybody to make him happy. He doesn't need anybody for him to have fellowship with. And besides that, if God was looking for fellowship, he's got trillions of angels that were already in existence that he could fellowship with them. Now, the Bible tells us that God made man in his own image and after his own likeness. And the angels, the Bible says, desire to look into our salvation. They recognize the great position 
that God made man to operate in, the great position that he made man to hold. The Bible even tells us that on the time of the, the um, creation, in Psalm 8, here's a psalm that David uh, composed by the will of God. Here's what David said, O Lord, thy, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Now this word angels is not the word messenger, as in most of the other times, the hundreds of times that the Bible speaks of angels. This is the word Elohim. It means the Godhead, the Trinity. Thou hast made him a little lower than God, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, in Hebrews chapter 2, Paul tells us that this was the angel, one of the angels, that were questioning what this thing called man, that God said, let us make man in our own image. They were saying, what is man? It's a real question. So whatever heavenly beings the angels are and they were made to be, we know things changed. They had a status at one time where they had a choice and their will could either follow God or as a third of the angels did, they followed Satan into rebellion. But now the angels are sealed. They've chosen their side. A third of them went with Lucifer, but two-thirds of them went with God. And as a result of that choice, the Bible says that the angels are sealed until the end of time. And so the angels are asking, what is man? What's this thing called man? That thou madest him to have dominion over the works of your hand. What is this thing called man that you've given authority in the earth? They're shocked. They don't know what to think about this. God certainly didn't confer with them. He didn't have to get a committee to vote on it. And when they hear God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, they're wondering what this is. Now the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve, well, Adam specifically, lived 930 years after the fall. We don't know how many years he made that he uh, was here on the earth before he fell, but the Bible tells us specifically that 930 years was the length of his time that, conclude, that uh, started, the clock started at his fall. So God's the Bible's in, in information to us is quite simply Adam was created by God. He was given authority over the earth and over the works of God's hands, and he fell. That's really about all we know about Adam. Now, what was God's purpose? 
What was God making man for? If he made him to have authority in the earth, then he had to have a reason for giving man that authority. What did he make man for? The Bible says, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he said, In what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, right away we see through the instruction that Paul gave us by the direction of the Holy Ghost that God's intent is to walk in us. Now, Jesus told us, talking about spiritual things, specifically the new birth, Jesus told us that you can't put new wine in old skins because the old wineskins would burst. That's a reference, an allusion to God's plan for mankind. He's literally saying you can't put the Spirit of God in an unregenerate spirit. It would kill man. It would kill all of mankind if God was to put his Spirit in us prior to regenerating our spirits. So right away, it's telling us that God's master plan was righteousness for man. Now it goes a little further and identifies God's plan for man in Hebrews chapter 8. In verse 10, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and will write them in their hearts and will be unto them a God and they shall be unto me a people. Folks, there's only one conclusion that we can draw from God's purpose and why God did things the way that he did. And that's very simply that God wanted to share life with human beings. God wanted you and I to experience his very life, his very substance. By regenerating our spirits, in other words, putting a new spirit in us when we're born again, and then he places his spirit within. Now here's a question I've got for you. How is God going to write his law in our hearts? How is he going to operate with mankind expecting and producing his law written in our hearts which just simply means man making the word of God a part of his substance and a part of his existence. How's God going to do that with humankind that doesn't even own a Bible? We take things so for granted. And I'm as guilty as everybody is about this. We interpret the Bible with a Western mentality, which hardly ever works because it's an Eastern book. 
So we look at things and we consider our access to the Bible, the Holy Word of God, and we just automatically think that everybody had the same options and availability and opportunity as we do. But how in the world is God going to get his word in people's hearts prior to the invention of smartphones? Prior to the canon of scripture being identified and created and the printing press was simply, simply a natural thing that man created that's vitally important to the word of God becoming part of us. So God created man in his own image. But God's purpose for mankind is to be born again. It's the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But that truth is created by the knowledge of the word of God in, on the inside of us. You remember in John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus said, talking to those that had expressed loyalty toward Jesus in the things of God, he made a distinction between believers and disciples. He spoke to those that believed on him, and he said, if you continue in my word, then you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now he's saying that to delineate the difference between those that are believers and those that are disciples. Disciples are the ones that continue in the word. The disciples are the ones that put the word of God in their heart. The disciples are the ones that meditate on the word of God to such a degree that the word becomes part of them. But how are they going to do that? The rabbis have scrolls of Old Testament scripture, but they didn't have con uh, any contact with that. They could hear what the Jewish teachers and rabbis taught in the synagogues. But Jesus showed that so much of what they taught was contrary to the intent and the purpose of God. So how is God going to accomplish this? Well, God had a plan, and that plan is explained and identified, and we have the examples of it over and over again. One of the things that I, I want to speak to is Genesis chapter 12, when God makes a covenant with, with Abraham. Let me read this starting with verse 1, Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and will bless thee and shall make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curses thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed or Abram had departed, as the Lord had sp spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, 
And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. So he made a threefold promise. He told Abraham, or Abram, who will become Abraham. He told Abram that I will bless thee. Proverbs 10, is it verse 22 that says, The blessing of the Lord maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. He said, I will bless you, promised him riches, and I will make thy name great. He shall have a great family. He shall have multitudes of people to carry on from his line, hereditary line. And then the last thing that it said, I will bless thee, I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Now in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Now folks, this has to be a supernatural event. We know from the things that we see in Abram's life, for example, when Lot was taken captive, when the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were sacked, Abram made an army out of the people in his own household, and they went back and they got all the people that the enemies, the conquering enemies had taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. And you may remember that that was when Melchizedek came on the scene. And Abram told the king of Sodom that he wouldn't take anything from him. The king of Sodom suggested that Abraham take the spoils, but he had keep the people. And Abram said that he didn't want to do that, didn't want to take anything as spoils from the battle because he didn't want the king of Sodom to go around saying he made Abram rich. He wanted his riches to be known as from and by the hand of God. Well, so we see that Abram's attitude about God making him rich, it had to be based in some knowledge or some experience that Abraham had that made him very rich in silver and cattle and gold. So what was God's plan? What does this example show us? It goes further to say that Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek to honor God. One of the things I think about tithing that we miss out on is that the reason that tithing was added to what God instructed his people to do because it didn't come from God, it came from Abram. It was something that Abraham did independently. Now that's not to say that God didn't want him to, but there's no indication in any way whatsoever that Abraham was commanded to pay tithes. He paid tithes willingly 
because he recognized that God was his source. He recognized that whatever supernatural things had happened to make him very rich in silver and cattle and gold were God's doing and not man's. And so he's blessing God back with a tenth of what he had just because he loved God and wanted to honor him. So we see that Abram, being very rich in silver and cattle and gold, was not something that he struggled with paying 10%. It was not something God had to consider or could uh, command him to do. He very simply honored God by giving him back 10% of what he had provided for him. Now, if we fast forward, we find the nation of Israel in bondage in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1 tells us a little bit about this. It tells us about how that a Pharaoh, another Pharaoh, rose to power that didn't remember Joseph or consider the children of Israel to be a blessing to them, to the Egyptian people or the Egyptian nation. And so they began to bring them into servitude. They began to bring them in to slavery. And the Bible says that this new Pharaoh required tribute from the people of Israel. Well, you remember how that went. God commanded Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And he did, but there was this negotiation thing that went on for months between Pharaoh and Moses. And it ended in the ten judgments that God exacted over the, the different gods of the Egyptians. You remember when the angel speaks unto Moses through the burning bush. Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? If I do go to Pharaoh, who am I going to say you are? And God identifies himself, I am that I am. Again, here's the self-reliant, self-existent one identifying himself as saying, I am whatever I need to be. To set his people free. Moses didn't know who God was. Moses wasn't worshiping God. The people of Israel certainly weren't worshiping God. And a part of the negotiations that took place over these next several months. Moses would call down a plague upon Egypt. The first one you remember was turning the water, not just the Nile River, but all the water in the nation to blood. The Israelites were affected by that just as much as the Egyptians were. And then it tells us about how God exacted judgment on Egypt by sending frogs in such an abundance that 
they were in the beds. They were in the kitchenware. They would show up anywhere and everywhere. The children of Israel were affected by that as well. I think it was the, the last one that they were uh, identified with or affected by was the lice, the plague of lice. Now, all of these things and everything that would continue as judgment upon Egypt was judgment upon Egypt's gods. They had idols that they worshipped for each one of these things that took place. But God separated the land of the, uh, the Egyptian, I'm sorry, he separated to Goshen, the area of land where the Israelites lived. And so they stopped being affected by these things. But there was a plague upon the God that was identified as a cattle or a steer or, or a bull along with others. And the Bible tells us that God exacted this upon their gods simply to show us, or show Israelites, really. We see it as an example. And we identify how it applies to us. But it was specifically showing the children of Israel that God is the most high God. That he's stronger than any of the other gods. There's no God like him. And it was intended for them to learn that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was truly the creator of the universe. And Pharaoh comes out of this looking so inept. But remember, Pharaoh was considered to be God too. They had statues of the Pharaohs because they considered them to be gods. Finally, the last of the plagues was the death of the firstborn, and it's connected with the Passover. God gives Israel specific instructions on what to do with the Passover, what to do at the time of the Passover as it was established. And so they killed a lamb. They were commanded to use the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lentils. And they were commanded to eat all of the lamb and not leave any of it left, uneaten or unused, for the strength of their journey. They were commanded to eat it with their clothes on, traveling clothes ready to go. But before they left, they spoiled the Egyptians. They went and borrowed. The King James says borrowed literally means they demanded payment for the 430 years that Israel had been in slavery in Egypt. Now, folks, one of the things that's such astonishing, so astonishing, is the rebellion of Israel right on the heels of these plagues. You remember when they got to Mount Sinai, Moses went up into the mountain, 
and he brought down the law of the Ten Commandments. And he found that Aaron had yielded to the desire and the will of the people and that they had created a, a, a golden calf so that they could worship it and treat it as God. How dumb do you have to be to think that the creator of the universe that's just brought all these judgments upon the gods of Israel, uh, gods of Egypt, one of them being the cow idol that was considered by the Egyptians to decide and determine what would happen with their flocks. How dumb do they have to be to come up with the idea of worshiping one of the idols whom judgment fell on during the ten plagues? Now, when we look back to Abraham, Abraham was promised three things, remember, in Genesis chapter 12. I will bless thee, there's riches. I will make thy name great, there's the family. And I shall make thee a blessing. This was accomplished by the Israelites in Egypt when Joseph becomes the prime minister. And Jacob's 12 sons become nations in and of themselves. How is God going to get his people or his word inside of his people? See, when the Bible tells us that God's plan is to dwell in us, that really means the word of God dwelling in us. How is he going to get his word impacted and implanted into our hearts? Well, he tells Joshua that the key is to meditate in the word, to speak or mutter the word of God to us day and night. So how is Israel going to, re uh, going to respond to this? Well, we know that Finally, Pharaoh relented and told them to take their stuff and to leave the land of Egypt. They spoiled the Egyptians by borrowing of them or demanding payment of them with silver and gold and riches and jewels and so forth. And the people of Egypt are so glad to get rid of them and put an end to these plagues especially with the last one being the death of the firstborn, every house is affected. Every house, other than those that have the blood on the doorposts, is affected. And there's such grief that consumes the land of Egypt that, as I said, they're willing to give them anything and everything they have to get rid of them. But through the eating of the Passover, something else happens. The Bible says in Psalm 105, I think it's verse 20, 37, 
It says he brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. Not one feeble among them. How many of you have seen those commercials on TV where there are ministries that are trying to raise money to take care of impoverished, older Jews that are living in abject poverty? Why would we assume that the slavery that the Israelites were under in their bondage to Egypt would be different than anything that we see on the TV? It shows the squalid conditions that many are experiencing and the ministry is trying to do a good job, do a good work by raising money to provide food for these people that have been displaced in many cases but that are again living in poverty but at the same time the people of Israel were clamoring to go back to Egypt when the time becomes difficult and most of that was created by their own unwillingness to obey God and accept him at his word. They start talking about the things that they enjoyed in Egypt. They started talking about the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And they demand flesh to eat. And God gives them quail. You remember how it tells us that he came, that this quail came in from the east winds from the Mediterranean Sea. And these quail wind up just landing in the camp. And God gives them quail so much. And it says that he was displeased by their tempting him. That they got so much quail that they were sick of it. Now, there's something I think it is worth considering, and that is, why didn't they just kill some of the flocks that they had? The Bible indicates to us that they were in service in the fields to Pharaoh and his court. So even though they had great herds and flocks of sheep and such. They didn't consider killing something that they had and eating that for flesh. We know that very shortly before then, there was enough sheep for everybody to experience the Passover. Why would we assume that they couldn't have used some of their own flocks and provided that for their own well-being? Cooking that for something to eat. They're complaining against the manna, which is there every day except the Sabbath. 
But the reality is that while Israel was in bondage to Egypt, flocks and herds of cattle and sheep were at least in part condemned and they had to pay to Pharaoh the tribute or the taxes. And you remember that was one of the issues in Jesus' day. The tax collectors were greatly hated by the Jews because they're collecting what could fairly be identified as too much tribute. And so the Romans were hated for that among many, among many other reasons by the Jews. So again, we're back to the same trouble, the same problem for God. And that is, how does he get his word on the inside of these people? Folks, everything about Abram's life points to one thing, and that is God wanted him to develop faith so that he could believe God's word and be a doer thereof. Well, it worked for Abram, who became Abraham. It worked for him because of the supernatural things that he had seen God do for him with finances and provision. It created a basis or a foundation for him to trust God to have a child when he was 100 years old even after his body and Sarah's body at 90 years old had ceased working in the reproductive manner. Now the Bible tells us in Psalm 107 and I want to read a couple of verses from this you're familiar with verse 20, but there are some other verses that we kind of skip over and leave alone with this. Psalm 107, beginning in verse 17, fools because of their transgression and because of their iniquities are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near to the gates of death. Do you realize what it's talking about here? It's saying they reject the word. It says they reject the answer to their problem, which is the word of God. Remember, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the word of God, it is the power of God to salvation. That word salvation is an all-inclusive term. It means to rescue, to deliver, to make safe, make sound, and to heal. Paul recognized that the word of God was the answer to every problem there is. Well, Jesus identifies that for us too. We see in Matthew chapter 4 when the devil comes to tempt Jesus after he's been in the wilderness for 40 days and Jesus simply quotes the word of God to overcome the temptations that Satan brings to him. Each time he said it is written and he quoted the word, and the devil had no defense for that. The first was when he was 
suggested to by Satan that he turned rocks into bread. A creative miracle that Jesus was able to do. But instead he answered and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus, by example, shows us that the answer is in the word. So for those that Psalm 107 is talking about, fools because of their transgression or because of their iniquities are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. You remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was commanded by God to go preach to the Assyrians. And God gives him some inside information about it. He said, if you don't go preach to the Assyrians, then judgment will fall upon them in something like 30 days and they'll be destroyed. Well, Jonah was human just like we are. He saw the injustice that the Assyrians had done to Israel and brought upon Israel. And so he decided that destruction was what they needed. So he got on a ship and went the opposite direction from where God wanted him to go. But the Bible says that God had prepared a fish. After the storm comes upon the ship, Jonah confesses to the captain. He said, this is my God that's doing this because I'm running away from what he wants me to do. And so the captain of the ship, though he didn't want to make God angry, recognized that they were all going to perish if they didn't get rid of Jonah. And so they throw him overboard and the fish swallows him up. Now in the belly of this fish that Jonah identifies as seaweed wrapped around his head. And I always have to be careful about this because you remember that ride at Disney World or Disneyland where they've got Monstro from the Pinocchio story with his mouth wide open for the boats to go into. I guess I've always thought of it like that, that there was lots of room in, in the, the whale for Jonah to be able to get around in. But the Bible really doesn't tell us that. And it would make sense that he would be in a place that was just barely room enough for him to be in as a part of the curse for him disobeying God and running from him. But in the midst of this belly of the fish, Jonah says something that you ought to pay very specific attention to. I don't like tattoos, and I never wanted my kids to have them. But if there's ever a, tat a saying that should be made into a tattoo, this is it. Jonah said, fools forsake their own mercies 
because of their iniquities. Jonah recognizes while he's in the belly of the fish. The Bible doesn't tell us that God talks to him. But in the belly of this fish, Jonah recognizes that there is one answer that could bring deliverance to him, and that is obedience to God's word. Now think of all the times in the Old Testament where God promises something good, promises a blessing upon his people, but it's always conditional. It's always as a result of them obeying God's word that the blessings of God would come upon them. We look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 a lot. The first 14 verses of the chapter tell about the blessings of obedience. All these things shall come upon thee and overtake thee if you keep the commandments of God and put his word first. And we know that putting God's word first brings about the very things that Jesus taught in so many parables. For example, in Matthew chapter 4, it tells us about the sower sowing the word. And the whole result of the blessing of God comes as a result of putting the word first place in your life. How is he going to get the word of God in the inside of the people when they don't even have it to refer to? Fools, because of their transgressions, are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth every manner of meat. And they draw near into the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Folks, I want you to realize something here. The Holy Ghost is telling us that the answer for whatever you need, whatever answer there is that you have need of, specifically healing, is in the word. Now you tell me, what does somebody that's been diagnosed with a certain disease or dire physical conditions, what do they go for? Do they go for the word? Do they get out their Bibles and start finding out everything that the Bible says about healing for the physical body? Or do they look for somebody to pray for them? Their soul abhorreth all manner of good. And they cry unto the Lord in their distresses. And he sent his word to heal them. It doesn't say he sent prayer to heal them. It says he sent his word to heal them. 
But the church wants people to pray for them. The modern day Christian, by and large, searches out somebody that believes in healing. It rarely is the church, the pastor of the church they go to. But they go to somebody that talks about healing or has some kind of special place with God in prayer, or so they think. And of all the things that have happened in the years that we've been pastoring here, of all the people that have come from outside of our church, I'm not talking about our own people, but people that have come from outside of the church, I have never had anybody say, Pastor Mike, I've been diagnosed with cancer, so I want you to teach me the word so I can overcome this. But I've had thousands of people come to me and ask me to pray that God would take away this cancer or this disease or whatever it is they have. Now, folks, I'm not knocking prayer. In fact, the Bible says in James chapter 5, verse 15, and the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. But it gives a specific kind of prayer that works. The prayer of faith. It's not the prayer of begging God for an answer. It's not the prayer that prays, Lord, if it be your will, let this thing be taken from us. It's the prayer of faith that believes it receives when it prays. So back to Israel being delivered from bondage after Pharaoh changes his mind and goes into the Red Sea chasing after them the Red Sea that had been that had been parted by Moses stretching out his rod over the waters Here's Israel brought over on dry land and they watched the greatest military force on the face of the earth in that day destroyed when the waters come back together. And in a very short time the children of Israel come to the waters of Marah. The Bible says they were bitter. It could mean they were poisonous. It's hard to tell from the, from the language. But at the very least, it's unpleasant. And at the very worst, it's poisonous. And God identifies himself to the people. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 23, I believe it is. When they came to the Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Folks, if you do a study of the word murmur in the Old Testament, you'll be shocked how many times it's there. Now, murmuring 
God's word, that'll produce a different result. That would produce meditating in the word to build it into your life, to build it into your consciousness. It's what it's one meaning of the word meditate that God told Joshua about how to be successful. In Joshua 1.8, it says, This book of the law, God's word, in other words, shall not depart out of your mouth. That means keep saying it. But thou shalt meditate. One of the meanings of the word meditate is to mutter. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. You get the word down on the inside of you, and the devil can't stop you from prospering. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. It doesn't even say that God will make you prosperous or God will bring you good success. It says you'll just have it. It's a natural byproduct of the word of God being planted in your heart. It's the fulfillment of of Hebrews chapter 8 that we looked at earlier. I will write my laws in their heart and they shall be my people and I shall be their God. So here's the children of Israel just a couple of days beyond the Passover when God has healed the people so that there are no people among them. God identifies who he is. Now remember what we started with. Moses didn't know who God was, so he had to ask him. The children of Israel certainly didn't know who God was because there was nobody worshiping him at that time. They had forgotten the stories of Abram, who became Abraham, the stories of Isaac and Jacob. They've been in bondage so long, they don't even remember where they came from. But something happened, just like something happened, some, some specific supernatural event that caused the people of Israel to spoil the Egyptians. Something specific happened there. And that specific something that happened was a supernatural favor that came on the children of Israel that caused the children of Egypt to give them everything they had that caused them to spoil the Egyptians. And so God says, he tells Moses what to do. The people murmured and said against, murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast the waters, the waters had been made sweet. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance And there he proved them. I want you to notice that phrase, a statute and an ordinance. That's the equivalent of an eternal law. Here's God giving them an answer that's not just going to work for the things that they're experiencing at the moment. But it will always work for them. Remember in the sower, sowing the word parable, 
Jesus said that that parable, which deals with the attitude that we have toward the Word of God, contains all the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And not only that, but Jesus tells his disciples when they want to know the meaning. He said that this parable is the foundation for understanding all parables. So he's saying the truth of the word, taking care of the truth of the word that you hear is the most important thing you can do in your life. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised when they get to heaven because the things that they thought were so important here, good things like witnessing, getting people saved, even though that is certainly operating under the, in the will of God, it's not the first and foremost thing that God expects of his people because God doesn't want people just converted he wants them to go beyond making a decision for Christ to being a disciple of Christ. So God says to the people through Moses, he makes unto them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them and he said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. I will put none of these diseases upon them which have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. He's not just saying, I'm the Lord that will heal thee. He's saying, I'm the one that caused there to be no feeble among you. Otherwise, how could they have accepted the statute and the ordinance? Moses throws the tree into the waters. What are they going to say to that? That it was just a lucky guess? That Moses just happened to come upon an idea and it worked? No, remember the example that we saw with Abram. God caused a supernatural event or a series of supernatural events to cause Abram to be very rich in silver and cattle and gold. And it worked so well, it made such an impression upon Abraham that Abraham's attitude toward money and riches became one of the fact that those riches were a tool to be used in his life, but not the focus of his life. In the same way, God is saying, when you ate the Passover meal and discovered that the people that used to be feeble and sickly are no longer that way. Now, if this was the only example we had of this, then it'd be pretty thin for us to make a doctrine out of it. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, in verse 30, I believe it is, it tells of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah becomes king of Israel. 
and he reinstitutes 765 years after the original Passover meal. He reinstitutes the keeping of the Passover for the nation of Israel. They have given up and literally had no remembrance through their oral traditions of the things that were passed down from generation to generation. But Hezekiah, who has access to some of the teachings that Moses passed down, he sees this Passover and recognizes the significance of it. And so he instructs the people of Israel to prepare for the Passover, and they do, even though they didn't keep all the details just exactly right. They took and participated in the Passover meal once again. And it says, The Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. In Hezekiah's day, the Bible is very specific about telling us that healing was associated with the Passover meal. If we bring it into a little bit more modern time, you may remember that, saw, that uh, Paul says that it was revealed to him what the Lord did on that last supper that he had and spent with his disciples. Now, the revelation that he received wasn't just information about what Jesus said to the disciples, his disciples, at the Last Supper. Every one of the gospel writers gives us some kind of indication or some information about how that Last Supper went. So why would Paul need further revelation to know about what Jesus said, to know about the sop that he gave Judas, and to know about some of those details. Well, those weren't the details that were revealed to him. Paul is wondering why people in the Corinthian church are weak and sickly, and many are dying prematurely. And the Lord revealed to him by his own admission that the reason why the Corinthian church was filled with people that are weak and sickly and dying prematurely was because they had the wrong attitude toward the Lord's Supper that they're partaking. Now, if the wrong attitude toward the Lord's Supper, the unworthy manner in which they were receiving it, If it was revealed to Paul that there was a result, a clear-cut result of what partaking of the Last Supper with the wrong attitude does, then Paul is getting instruction from God himself on how to change the problem or change the situation and solve the problem. And isn't it interesting that the only place that the Bible tells us about the natural, specific 
application of the Lord's Supper has to do with healing for the physical body. The Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Here's three witnesses. The original Passover, the Passover of Hezekiah's day, and the Passover of the modern day Church of Corinth. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people and the children of Israel that were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord by day, day by day singing with loud instruments to the Lord. So we see that Exodus chapter 15 verse 23 is identifying the role of the Lord's Supper and the benefits thereof when we keep it with the right attitude. So he tells them, he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them and said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, here's conditional again, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the Lord that healeth thee. I'm the Lord that healed you through the Passover just a few days before. And I am the Lord that will always heal you and provide for you. I believe God's looking for people, especially in these last days, I believe God's looking for people that have a backbone to them and are willing to endure hardness and hold fast to the truth of God's word. I was diagnosed almost um, 12 years ago. It's either 12 or 13. I don't remember exactly when, I, when it started. I remember the time of the year, but I don't remember exactly what year it was. But I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And there have been a number of things that have happened, symptoms that have come on me. And it didn't come on just once, and it, here's everything present at the same time. There are things over the years that have added to other symptoms that I had. I don't talk about it much because, quite frankly, it's none of your business. But over the years, there have been specific things that I put my faith on specific things that have caused me more problems, more trouble at some times than at other times. One of the things that's happened over the last several years
is a condition that the medical community calls stroke foot. The neurologist told me that the MRI I took way back in the beginning of this thing showed me that showed him that I had had over some period of time a series of many strokes. I remember there was one time during a Sun, uh, Wednesday night service where I experienced whether it was a heart attack or a stroke or whatever, I don't know. Not sure I really even know the difference or the distinction between the two. But it was something that attacked me during the Wednesday night service. And I had to stop teaching for a little bit. And I looked over to the empty chairs and man, they looked good. I wanted with all of my might to just go sit down for a moment. And I recognized that it was a spiritual battle. I recognized that it was the devil telling me to go sit down. And I have every confidence that if I had sat down, I would either have lost my, my life to this thing that was going on, or I would have been permanently affected by it. But one of the things that the medical community identifies as a problem or a part of the curse of a heart attack or a stroke is that you lose some of your control as far as your steps are concerned. And so for the last several years, I've been kind of dragging my right foot. And no matter what I tried to do, no matter how much I tried, without doing some exaggerated overcompensating thing where I put, pull my foot up and take a step down like that, a deliberate step down like that, that was really the only option that I had. But during this trip, five days ago, this being the fifth day, the stroke foot stopped. I'm not con consciously walking any differently than I had before. It's just that my foot will go where it's supposed to go now. Folks, I'm here to tell you there are some things that if you deal with them long enough, you forget what it feels like not to hurt. Or you forget what being normal was like. Don't feel sorry for me. I wouldn't want to do it again for anything in the world. But the experience that I've gotten and the things that I've lived through when it comes to exercising authority over your body, 
when it comes to resisting the devil and watching him flee and taking his symptoms with him one at a time. That has produced such a blessing to me. that I really can't describe it. I would certainly prefer that things work a little faster than they have. But I'm here to tell you that God's word works. God said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. God revealed to Israel through the Passover and also the cleansing of the waters at Marah. God identifies himself as the Lord that healeth thee. Now this is the first time, the first of seven times, that God identifies himself. There were six other things that he identified himself as and the blessing that it provided for his people. But for the first one to be divine healing, healing for the physical body, it seems that God put a premium on that above anything and everything else that he would later tell them. And remember the example that we show, that the Bible shows us. God causes a supernatural event to take place that we might have faith in his word and be able to draw from it to experience the power of his salvation. And again, salvation there is a, a term, it's an all-inclusive term. I'm not talking about forgiveness of sins. I'm talking about deliverance, safety, soundness, and healing for the physical body. God's word is at work in my body. My faith is giving substance to my healing. And it's supposed to work that way for each and every one of us. Because we serve the God that healeth thee. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. Lord, it's so good to be free from these symptoms. We take the position of Paul on the ship. We believe it shall be unto us even as it was spoken. We believe that we shall walk 
in the health and the healing power of God himself. For you are the Lord that healeth us. Lord, we discern rightly the Lord's body that he took upon himself stripes and that by those stripes and the blood that was shed through that horrible beating that he endured the price, the full price for divine healing and health was paid. So Father, we, according to your word in James 5, 15, and the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick and you, Lord, shall raise us up. And if we've committed sins, they shall be forgiven us. Therefore, Lord, we declare that we are healed from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. We declare that we are free from every work of the evil one. That we are healed from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. Lord, you know that I've talked to you about this many times. But I expect that because of the way these things have gone and the length of time associated with these things, return to us, Lord, the years that the locust has eaten. Restore unto us every person that considers this to be their church restore divine health to us father you know that we have not wavered for one moment we have not given up or yielded to circumstances. But I say by the grace of God that we have stood strong and will continue to for as long as we have it, for as long as we have time here on this earth. Father, I pray that we would not be known as the church or the pastor that overcame Parkinson's, but that rather we would be a church that is known by the healing power of God. I bless you, Father. I thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. And because you don't, all things are possible unto us who believe in you. Thank you, Lord, for doing exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. 
In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's all stand. Say it with me. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. Now say it this way. The Lord is good, and his healing mercy endures forever. Amen. God bless you.